In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Let me start with a question this morning. Anyone here ever been sent to the principal's office? I'm not going to ask if any of you guys have been to court and had to stand in front of a judge before. But when you're in the principal's office, how did you feel? What was your reaction when your teacher said, go to the principal's office? Fear. Fear. Anybody else? Fabricated allegations. <laughs> is that a feeling, Robert? Okay, I'll, I'll go with fabricated allegations as a feeling, right? Now, when I was a principal at a school, the municipal judge was a member of the church. And we'd always take the high schoolers over for a field trip down to his court in the day that the court wasn't in session. And every year he'd ask for a volunteer from the high school students to stand trial. And you know what's funny? The minute that gavel banged down, even though the student hadn't done anything wrong, or at least nothing that we knew about, right, the student would always get nervous. That's the power of the moment, right? Even if it's all fabricated allegations, just being called to the principal's office makes us nervous. It makes us afraid. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for your instruction. Now last week we kind of transitioned from the time of the prophets, which we've been into throughout the summer and the fall, back to the end of Moses' ministry. And here we're going back a little bit further in time. In this part of Exodus, God's people are free. They're safe in the desert and they're wandering. God's feeding them every day. And Moses and Joshua go up to the mountain of God to receive the commandments. And God told Moses just to come and wait. It reads, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. How must Moses have felt? He listens to God, he goes up, climbs the mountain, him and Joshua, and he gets there, and they wait. He and Joshua have to wait one full week, before God even starts talking to him. Now, how would that make you feel? If you got called into the principal's office, he just sat there for a long time staring at you, fabricated allegations or not, how would you be feeling the longer he stood there staring at you? Probably more and more nervous, like what, what does he know and who told, right? But they're surrounded by clouds and the glory of the Lord, I don't know if they were excited or terrified, but they're just sitting there and waiting for a full week. The Bible says this, The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now I've noticed in Philadelphia, you all, you all sometimes use the word a minute differently depending on context, right? If you've got a stopwatch in your hand and you said, Boris, you ran that in a minute 30 seconds. Well, that's 90 seconds, right? But if I haven't seen Boris in a while, and I go up to him and says, hey, Boris, it's been a minute. Could have been a month, could have been a year, could have been 10 years, right? Some scholars think 40 days and 40 nights is an expression like that. It's an expression that the, the writers use when they know that it's been a long time, but nobody was sitting there actually keeping score. We don't know. But whether it had been 40 literal days and nights, or just been a minute. Moses was up there for a long time. Moses is going to give 
the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, right? The ones we picture when we see Charlton Heston in our mind up there talking with God. But God's also spending time. He spends chapters talking with Moses about how to build a tabernacle, how to make all the things that go in the tabernacle, various other things that he wants, Josh, he wants Moses to know, very specific directions in some cases. Moses wasn't just up there sitting in the presence of God and waiting the whole time. What we don't read in this passage, because it comes a few verses later, is God's people become impatient. They see the glory of God on the mountain for all of those days that looks like a fire, and eventually they assume the Lord's taken Moses. And they convince Aaron to do things he shouldn't, and Aaron gives in to the mob. But for a moment, let's look what's happening here. Moses is acting as a mediator for God's people. He's going to the mountain to receive the law. And God's showing up in a way that's impossible to explain to those seeing it, unless it's the manifestation of God's glory on the earth. And look how important that revelation is. Everyone knows to some degree what the Ten Commandments are today, right? If you were to go and stop people randomly on the streets like we had a talk show, and ask people to give us a commandment, I bet you most people, even with a camera and lights in their face, could come up with one or two, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. We know those. People that aren't Christians, people that aren't Jewish, they know one or two. They know about what the Ten Commandments are. But hold on to a minute of that vision of Moses on the mountain. God's glory surrounding him, receiving the revelation of God. David writes, The Lord is king, let the people tremble. He's enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth shake. David's the king, and he sees God sitting in the heavens on his throne. Whether he's seeing it literally or whether he's imagining it, I don't know. But he sees God surrounded by the hosts of heaven. And he says we should be trembling. The very earth shaking in his presence. Now I'm sure as king, David has seen the way that people react around him. Right? Kind of like us when we get sent to the principal's office or have to stand before a judge. When you had to go to the principal, did you remember that moment of nervousness? That one where you either wanted to curl up into a little ball or run away or start arguing before you even knew what the principal wanted to talk to you about, right? And David's been on both sides of it. As a young man, he stood before the king and before the army and said, if you guys aren't brave enough to go and fight Goliath, give me my sling and I'll go and do it. Later on, the king marries his daughter to him and tries to kill David. And now he is the king. He sees how people respond in his presence. And he says, the whole earth should feel that way about my God. He continues, O mighty king, lover of justice, you've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And God reigns not like earthly rulers. He rules with justice and equity. He's fair and without discrimination based on who you are, where you've been born, or how much you have. God cannot be bribed. And he's even judged his own people when they've not lived up and lived in with the justice and equity he's called them to. David writes, Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among all those who call upon his name, they called on the Lord and he answered them. God talks to his people. David remembers the story of Moses and Aaron. He was appointed king by Samuel. When God's people call out to him, God answers. David says, you answered them indeed. You are God who forgave them. 
yet punish them for their deeds. God loves us. God forgives us. But he doesn't always remove the consequences of our actions. Even those who David mentions here, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, we can read in the Bible about mistakes they made, about sins they've committed. And God didn't always deliver them out of their mistakes. But God's love is great, and he loves us, and he forgives us. Our gospel says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter with him and James and John and led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzlingly white. Now in our gospel reading the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus on a mountain, but he's been giving a sermon. He's been telling people what his kingdom is going to look like, how we're all going to live, how we should treat each other. And now we come towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Six days before this, he'd asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist or Moses, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the other prophets. And Peter looks at him and says, no, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in Matthew, it says that after this, Jesus starts telling his disciples he's going to have to be die and be raised again. And that same Peter goes, no, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him. And now we're six days later, just like Moses and Joshua's wait. And here they're climbing a mountain. And Jesus isn't bringing one person with him. He's bringing three, Peter, James, and John. And here we read everything should remind us of that experience that Moses had on the mountain with God. The very glory of God is shining on Jesus' face and on his clothes. And here Jesus is talking with two of the greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah. And Peter, well, Peter being Peter, he starts what he always does when he gets nervous. He starts talking, right? Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you wish, I'll make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But God doesn't let Peter finish his presentation. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The bright colored clouds, the voice of God, everything brings us back to mind the moment when God gave the law to Moses. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. I mean, what else could they do in that moment? Peter wants to build them tabernacles, temples, for the three of them to dwell in, to put up a monument to what he's been seeing. But God doesn't even let him finish the thought. He says similar words here to what he said at Jesus' baptism, only with the added commandment to listen to him. And they fall to the ground in fear. And Jesus comes and touches them because he's real. He's not a spirit. What happened to them was real. And he tells them, get up and do not be afraid. And as they're coming down the mountain, he tells them, don't tell anyone what you saw here until I've been raised from the dead. Jesus is about to become the mediator between God and man. He's about to institute a new law, one based on the simple idea that we should love God and love our neighbors, love everyone. Peter, James, and John had seen something they cannot explain without God's presence having been there. Years later, Peter writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, or someone writing for Peter, is like, listen, these aren't myths. 
It's not hearsay. I was there. I saw with my own eyes what happened that night to Jesus. That God's glory came on him. That night it was just like described what happened to Moses in Exodus. The presence of God strong. Jesus seemed like he was glowing. The clouds glowing. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah were there talking to him. And then Peter writes, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. This isn't a secondhand story for Peter. He was there. He saw Jesus transfigure. He saw Moses and Elijah. He heard the voice. Peter would be there when Jesus was arrested. He and John would go to the high priest's house when Jesus was there. He saw the empty tomb and saw the resurrected Christ. Peter was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. And he was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. He was an eyewitness from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And here he's affirming to the believers years later that all of what they'd been told had happened. He knows because he was there. And then he tells them, you must understand this. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter will go on to say that we don't interpret scripture on our own. We have the help of the Holy Ghost and each other to understand what God's trying to tell us. In some days, it's easy to understand what God's saying, right? It feels like the glory of the Lord is there in a figurative sense. It's hard to mistake what he's saying. In other days, we read and we pray, and it feels like we're wandering in the desert, or we're climbing the mountain and we're waiting on God's presence to show us, to help us to understand. And sometimes, just like with Moses, the answer is in praying, and waiting. Ash Wednesday is just days away. And ideally in Lent we're not just fasting, not just doing things to say that we did it. We should take the time fast and use it to pray and to study and to draw closer to the Lord, knowing that he loves and forgives us. And I ask you this year, pray that God transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Amen.